Now, unfortunately, we cannot unnecrose epithelial cells with albuterol. Hi, this is Alice. This is Shafali, and you're listening to Beads Admin. Alice, today we are so excited to be sitting down with Dr. Dennis Wren. He is a former children's resident, senior to both of us, and a current pediatric emergency medicine fellow. We can't wait to talk with him about the emergency department management of bronchiolitis. We think this is going to be a super high-yield episode. Without further ado, here's Dennis. So let's take it from the top. A child under two years of age presents in respiratory distress. What are the first questions that come to mind and what components of the physical exam do you get right when you walk into the room? So in the ER, things are sometimes flipped, a sense that the first question that comes to mind is, how sick is this child? So oftentimes we need to intervene emergently before we start gathering history. The things that I always look for on exam, and most of this can be done without even touching the child, are the degree of work of breathing and respiratory distress, their mental status and activity level. Sometimes one of the tricks that I use is, if I can, I stand at a distance to assess the child because they're in the ER, it's an unfamiliar setting, they hate how I look, and they could be crying and screaming, and that artificially increases their work of breathing. So sometimes I will stand at a distance and ask the parent to lift the child's shirt so I can see retractions that way. So from the doorway, you're just asking to get that shirt off. You can see the clavicles, the ribs, the nares, and you can see if there's flaring, if there's retractions. Correct. Yeah. So just to reinforce that most of your exam for respiratory distress can actually occur without ever having to touch the patient. And how do we actually define bronchiolitis? So bronchiolitis uh, is a lower respiratory tract infection. It leads to airway inflammation and obstruction. It's usually caused by a virus, most typically RSV, and the age group that we're looking at specifically is less than two years old. The other things that happen uh, from a pathophysiology standpoint are there is edema, there is mucus, and there is necrosis of the airway epithelial cells. Usually, the history that you're going to get is it starts with URI symptoms and then progresses either into increasing respiratory distress and, in the worst situations, respiratory failure. Sometimes there's fever. Some studies cite about a third to maybe half the time. And then in younger infants, a big fear that we have is that it can cause apnea. And in some kids, there can also be hypoxia from the VQ mismatching from intermittent bronchial plugging. The thing to keep in mind for bronchiolitis in the ER setting is, number one, we really have to figure out whether or not this respiratory distress is bronchiolitis. But the disease process for bronchiolitis is super, super dynamic. So when you are listening to lung sounds, it can include wheezes, crackles, coarseness, prolonged expiratory phase, transmitted upper airway sounds, and it changes almost minute by minute. So it's super, super important to constantly reassess your patient after any intervention to make sure that your intervention is actually doing something. One thing that I like to do that helps out with trying to distinguish transmitted upper airway sounds from actual lung sounds are I will place my stethoscope over the patient's nose and mouth. And then once I get a baseline of what I think their transmitted upper airway sounds are, when I listen to their lungs, I can kind of filter that out in my mind and see 
if this is actually coming from the lungs. Okay. So in bronchiolitis, the wheeze and the respiratory distress is coming from necrotic airway cells obstructing, causing sometimes VQ mismatch, but also sometimes a wheeze. You need to know if it's overall getting better or getting worse, but minute to minute, you'll see a big change. Yeah, that's correct. It's one of the most dynamic respiratory processes on examination. And because of everything going on, the differential diagnosis for a child in respiratory distress under two years of age is super, super wide because chances are they're not presenting to the ER with a known diagnosis of bronchiolitis. I have to kind of figure that out. And so the other things I always think about is, is the wheezing that I'm hearing just simply viral induced or do they have a history of reactive airway disease? If there's a personal history of wheezing, if the parents are reporting that the child received albuterol before and it seemed to help, or if there's a family history of asthma, allergies, or eczema, those are the things that I would think about if I'm going to trial albuterol. Other things to think about are pneumonia, pertussis, especially in small kids, doesn't classically present with the whooping cough that we're trained with. And if it's an acute onset, if there's any kind of association with choking, if there's a decreased aeration in one part of the lung, then the other consideration is a foreign body that's stuck in there. But the one caveat being that since there is plugging in bronchiolitis, sometimes mucus plugging and atelectasis can present with that lung finding as well. Other things to think about are anatomic abnormalities, vascular rings or slings, and the do not miss is really cardiac disease as well because that can present as respiratory distress, whether that is congenital heart disease, heart failure, or myocarditis. So I think the big takeaway here is red flag should raise when you see a, quote, bronchiolytic that either has clear lung sounds or has no history of preceding respiratory symptoms. How do you recommend identifying cardiac disease? What are some important physical exam findings to take into account? So this is the needle in the haystack, especially in the respiratory winter season when we're seeing a ton of bronchiolitis, but you're going to listen to the child's lungs anyway. So just take that time to really do a thorough cardiac exam and listen for new murmurs, rubs, gallops, feel for hepatomegaly. These younger kids, it's going to be harder to see edema, but those are very easy things that you can add to your physical exams and your listening anyway. And if any of those are present, then the risk of myocarditis might be a little bit higher. So always taking the time to get them not crying and really feel for that liver sort of helps you with your complete physical exam there. Absolutely. Yeah. The cardiac exam should always be part of an exam for bronchiolitis. And then I wanted to just quickly point out the components that you mentioned when deciding whether it is viral-induced wheeze versus reactive airways disease. You were referring to the asthma predictive index. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of components of the asthma predictive index that I use to make that decision. I, I don't follow it completely. Absolutely. There's definitely some gray area there. So bronchiolitis overall as a clinical diagnosis. Are there indications for imaging or lab testing in these patients? That's a great question. So the most recent AAP guidelines are from 2014. And so the recommendations and diagnosis guidelines that we're going to talk about are 
going to be the ones that at least have an evidence quality of B and a moderate recommendation strength. So from a diagnosis standpoint, your first question was whether or not I routinely do x-rays or lab studies. For lab studies, I would say routinely no. From a chest x-ray, the times where I would consider a chest x-ray is if the child has maybe an anatomic or pre-existing condition. So that can include tracheal esophageal fistula that might have been repaired, um, prematurity or any history of aspiration pneumonia. If there is concern that there's a foreign body, if there is persistent focal findings on exam with or without a fever, and if this child is going to the ICU, those are all things that I consider in my decision to obtain a chest x-ray. And then what do you think about giving albuterol or racemic epinephrine a try? This is where I remember as a resident, I was very confused when I admitted patients from the ER because I would often see different providers trial albuterol or give racemic epinephrine. And the answer to your question is that sometimes, and it's a very difficult decision to make, overall, the evidence meta-analysis-wise hasn't demonstrated a benefit from albuterol. But then if you read the guidelines a little bit closer, there is a part that says, Although it is true that a small subset of children with bronchiolitis may have reversible airway obstruction resulting from smooth muscle constriction, attempts to define a subgroup of responders have not been successful to date. And children with severe disease or with respiratory failure were generally excluded from these trials as this evidence cannot be generalized to these situations. So the prior guidelines actually also state a carefully monitored trial of alpha adrenergic or beta adrenergic medication is an option. Inhaled bronchodilators should be continued only if there is documented positive clinical response to the trial using an objective means of evaluation. So again, based on what we had talked about before, if there is a history of reactive airway in this child, responsiveness to albuterol, a family history of atopic disease, I would consider a trial of albuterol just to see if it would help them. But it's not something that I would routinely do. I feel like this is definitely a point of nuance that I've appreciated more as a second year. We definitely also do it on the inpatient side as well, even though we are talking about the ED perspective on bronchiolitis right now. There are cases where if we do appreciate a significant wheeze on exam and there are all the other components in the history that you mentioned, we will trial it as a temporizing measure to see if we can improve respiratory distress to the point that it wouldn't require like escalation to picky care. Yeah, because albuterol will open up reactive muscle that is squeezing, but it's not going to get epithelial cells out of the space and stop it from obstructing it, right? Now, unfortunately, we cannot unnecrose epithelial <laughs> cells with albuterol. That'd be amazing though. What about just thinking about things that open up lungs? Is there ever a role for hypertonic saline, chest PT, systemic corticosteroids? Maybe if there is a significant component for wheeze, are you thinking about really trying with other things before you send a kid up to the PICU? So no to all of those questions. There is no good evidence about hypertonic saline use in the ER or steroids or chest PT in the treatment of bronchiolitis. And I definitely also, from an antibiotic standpoint, won't administer antibiotics unless I have high suspicion for a bacterial infection or pneumonia. Going back to your question about racemic epinephrine, that is something I also do not routinely use. 
allergies, but I would consider trialing it if there's any history of a barky cough or strider. The big key here is in the ER, respiratory distress, bronchiolitis, reactive airway. Sometimes these disease processes, even though they're taught as distinct conditions, there is some overlap in all of them. And it's very difficult uh, without intervening to tell which one it is in an undifferentiated child. And especially with racemic epinephrine, there is some evidence to support that it can reduce the admission rate. So sometimes it is worth a try. And the idea with racemic epinephrine being it's an inhaled alpha agonist, it touches the blood vessels in sort of the upper airway, causes vasoconstriction, and takes the edema down. And so if you're concerned for upper airway obstruction, it may be beneficial. And, you know, where is the virus going? Is it down in the lungs or is it up in the throat? Who's to say, right? Right. And again, your classic history is that it'll start with URI symptoms. So when I'm thinking, especially in younger children where they still might be obligate nasal breathers, a degree of congestion in the upper airway that might respond to racemic epinephrine and reduce that swelling and allow them to feel a little bit better and feed better might be worth a shot. That's the same reason that some people will try oxygen. Very rarely have I seen medical air just at low flow for work of breathing. And I know this is a very contradictory statement, but potentially anecdotally, we can posit that even a small amount of flow, especially in a younger child with upper airway congestion and obstruction might help stent your upper airways open just a little bit more so they breathe a little bit more comfortably. So it's helping get air through the nose and oxygen generally only recommended if they're desatting. That's correct. You mentioned before avoiding use of antibiotics unless you have a high suspicion for a bacterial infection. What specific things are you thinking about if a patient comes in with a fever? How are you identifying risk of bacterial infection? This is definitely a topic that can take up a whole other episode, but in kids that are younger than 60 days and definitely kids that are younger than 28, 30 days with a diagnosis of bronchiolitis, you have to consider that they could also have a serious bacterial infection as well. So the idea of whether or not this patient might need further labs, including blood, urine, or even CSF studies, followed by 48 hours of antibiotics or observation is a common conundrum. And so I think that this particular discussion is going to warrant its own episode, but it's something that if I'm admitting a child with all these symptoms, I will either make the decision myself or this is a good time to actually chat with the hospitalist colleagues about what they would like to do. So you're saying that a respiratory viral PCR that's positive for RSV is not enough to rule out a serious bacterial infection in a patient with other concerning symptoms. Well, until they've had their two-month vaccines, I'm always going to think about a serious bacterial infection rule out. We might not do it, but we'll always think about it if they're under 60 days. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And there, there is evidence out there that states your risk, especially of a urinary tract infection, whether you have RSV or you don't have RSV, is about the same. So thinking about urine at least for a lot of these kids. Yeah, that's correct. So we mentioned that oxygen should generally be avoided unless a patient is hypoxemic. In what situations are we using respiratory support in these patients? So if a child has persistently elevated work of breathing, what type of modality are we thinking of? So classically, to start off these patients, I will suction Again, if there's a history of atopic disease, then plus minus albuterol to trial 
But if despite all those interventions, this child is still having persistent work of breathing, retractions, nasal flaring, even without desaturations, that's when we escalate to high flow nasal cannula. The idea behind that is that it may offer a little bit of PEEP that helps recruit the alveoli. It helps wash out carbon dioxide from your anatomic dead space. And there are studies that say that initiation of high flow nasal cannula can reduce the need for further escalation. So the ED is where a lot of these kids end up started on high flow. And I know in the hospital, we have mechanisms like pediatric early warning signs where we think about what child will be due for escalation. In the ED, they may have persistent work of breathing and some vital sign abnormalities. What do you usually see that triggers you to start high flow? Again, if despite all the previous mentioned interventions, this child is either having decreasing mental status, if they're having worsening retractions or no improvement in retractions, then that's when I would consider the starting high flow nasal cannula. When you are initiating high flow down in the ED, how do you decide on your initial rate? So high flow nasal cannula usually is dosed at a maximum of two liters per kilo. So I will usually try to start off at the maximum if I feel like this child is in severe respiratory distress. And if I have time, then we can start weaning down in the emergency department as well. Again, this disease process is so dynamic. So we're trying our best down in the emergency department to constantly reassess these children. But there are times where this child is either seen by the admitting team and they might look better or worse than initially billed. And Again, that's kind of just the part of the course for the disease process. I myself remember an incident when I was an intern on the floors and I had a child with bronchiolitis and I was called by the respiratory therapist to bedside because this child was having severe respiratory distress. So I got to bedside and sure enough, he was retracting up a storm, had copious secretions, started suctioning him but told my seniors as well. By the time my seniors arrived, the child looked completely new. And I remember the respiratory therapist even afterwards apologizing for escalating, but I saw the exact same thing that she did. So there was really no need. The good thing is nobody ever uh, got angry at me for escalating. So that's super important to keep in mind. If you feel concerned about a child and worsening respiratory distress, just escalate. And I think that's even another important thing to include when you're signing out a patient that even if they do improve when you're transitioning care, letting people know that they did look like this and there's a potential for worsening and knowing the next steps because it is such a dynamic disease process, as we've mentioned before. Any other pearls to keep in mind? Yeah, so just to kind of summarize the key take-homes, really the respiratory distress in a child has a super wide differential diagnosis, so always keep an open mind so that you don't get pigeonholed into just one thing, because what is often billed as bronchiolitis might not be bronchiolitis. Second, your respiratory exam, again, you can do a lot of your respiratory assessment and evaluate for severity without even touching the patient. Bronchiolitis itself is a clinical diagnosis, but it presents very heterogeneously. So there are a lot of overlapping features with other respiratory conditions. And again, just to emphasize, the exam for bronchiolitis is so, so, so dynamic. So intervene and reassess frequently. In any febrile child with bronchiolitis, especially less than 60 days old, should give you a bit of caution as well to think about other bacterial infections. And clinical guidelines are fantastic. 
but they do not replace our clinical judgment. Well, thank you so much for reviewing bronchiolitis in the ED with us today. This is definitely going to help change and tweak my initial management. As a closing question, can you tell us either something you learned recently that you can't get out of your head or your favorite thing about being an ED fellow? So most recently, um, I would say there's a lot of what we deem as classic teachings in medicine that actually don't end up holding their weight because as our knowledge has evolved and improved, these simply are not true anymore. And yet we're still continuing to be taught these things. Recently, we had a plastic surgeon talk to us about whether or not we can use lidocaine with epinephrine when we're repairing lacerations to the fingers, toes, or nose because we're classically taught that it causes necrosis. But that incidentally has been debunked. It turns out that in the early 1900s, doctors were mixing their own lidocaine with epi or procaine. Turns out that procaine is super acidic and it was often stored without an expiration date, so it can get even more acidic. And so now we think that's likely the culprit for the necrosis as well. But we haven't had those same issues once we've had pre-made lidocaine with epi. And the data from all the times that people accidentally inject an EpiPen into their fingers also supports that claim as well. So keep asking those questions and be inquisitive, and you'll probably end up uncovering even more of those so-called classic findings that are no longer supported by the evidence. Wow, that's awesome and such a good point to make. Thank you so much for sitting down with us. This was outstanding. We learned a lot. We'd love to have you back. Thank you, guys. It was great to be here. Alice, what an amazing episode. I think bronchiolitis is such a nuanced topic, and so it's really helpful to get multiple different perspectives on its management. What are your big takeaways? I love the way he talked about your physical exam assessment of respiratory distress and how if the parent can get the shirt off of the child and stop the crying, that's where you're going to capture good retractions. Absolutely. And I also love how he pointed out the dynamic respiratory exam and how important it is to continue to reassess your patient frequently, particularly after you try an intervention to see if it worked. I think what I also found really helpful is that he talked about how respiratory distress in a patient under the age of two can often present sort of on a spectrum and that it may not be bronchiolitis alone and you might be dealing with some type of upper airway inflammation as well. So trying to keep that in mind when you're assessing a patient and deciding on your interventions. Yeah. Other things we recommend, um, if you haven't heard Tina Halley's episode on the inpatient management of bronchiolitis, we think that if Dennis can talk about the initial assessment and Tina Halley can talk about getting the child to discharge, we highly recommend. They pair like a fine wine. And as always, we want to hear your questions, comments, concerns, things we missed. Please email us at pedsadmit at gmail.com. We're just waiting to hear from you. We are waiting. We can't stop refreshing. See you next time.